Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. Listening more specifically to the first interview in quite a while. Today's guest is Tess Gerritsen. She is the author, most recently, of The Spy Coast. The Spy Coast is set in Maine, in a small town called Purity, where a number of residents, our protagonist among them, happen to have had a previous life working in... I guess you'd say central intelligence. It's a spycraft, basically, to one degree or another. They comprise a reading group called the Martini Club. They get together to talk about books once a week and these sort of gossipy, boozy, literary get-togethers end up turning into something a little more forensic when the main character, Maggie, comes home one night and finds a dead body in her driveway. Tess Gerritsen is most famously the author of the Rizzolian Isles series, which, depending on your sourcing, has sold either 25 million copies or 30 million copies or 40 million copies. The series is currently made up of 13 novels, and it was adapted into a fairly long-running TNT series called Rizzolian Isles, which ran for seven seasons. She's written sort of romantic-leaning books, she's written medical thrillers, police procedurals, and now we can incorporate espionage into that mix. But I think it's safe to categorize Tess Gerritsen as a crime writer, and that's why I've been sort of binging Tess Gerritsen's work as part of a personal project where I've been trying to read some of the most popular, influential, best-selling American thrillers from the past 25 years. So I wanted to speak with Tess Gerritsen about The Spy Coast, but she was very patient with me and indulgent because I wanted to talk about it within the context of her larger body of work, in particular, the Rizzolian Isles series. Now, before we get into the interview, I've, I've obviously been editing it for a couple days, and I wanted to address some things about, like, my own approach to interviewing. The way that I prepared for this interview was I read in straight, quick succession books one through six of the Rizzolian Isles series, and as I was going through the series, I was just making constant notes, I was picking up themes, I was noticing motifs, all these recurring images, and I was just not talking about it with anyone. And I was so excited to talk with her, and I had been so just marinating in her work for the past few weeks, that I was like, you know what, I don't need to prepare like specific questions. I'm I just got these talking points and we can riff. What ended up happening is I got crazy, crazy nervous. Like, there was a point when I was getting ready for the Zoom call. I lifted my arm up to take something down from a cabinet and I saw that, like, my tricep was throbbing with my heartbeat. I was super nervous, super caffeinated, and I had these, like, long, rambling questions. So a lesson that I'm taking away from this is, no matter how well-versed I feel that I am in the author's material, I do need to hammer these things down into, like, concrete, succinct, questions. I've trimmed a lot of it down, but like there were some questions that were like crazy fucking stupid long. Also, there's a point in the middle of the interview where I'm like, oh yeah, I think this one, this one is your midlife crisis novel. What I meant was crisis novel. Anyways, point is, I recognize there's some issues with my own performance in this interview. Bear with me. I think it's just that because I've been making all these observations, all of these notes for weeks and keeping all of it to myself, I was a little overzealous with the question asking. Most emphatically, I want to thank Tess Gerritsen for her patience and to commend the release of The Spy Coast, which I think, apart from being a standout thriller among those that have been released this year, it's a 
fascinating turn in her own body of work. Here is my November 25th interview with Tess Gerritsen. When Rizzoli and Isles started with The Surgeon, I think in 98 or 99? 2001. So when that started, I, I was getting the sense, because I think I've seen it, shapes of this in other fiction, that it started as a one-off and yes. then there was a proposition for a trilogy and then it sort of trickled upwards. Could you give me a sort of bird's eye view of how that happened? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it was. I I wrote The Surgeon and it was supposed to be a one-off because up till then I had been doing one-offs, uh, been doing medical thrillers. And The Surgeon was kind of a bridge between my old medical thrillers and a crime novel because, it, I mean, it's about a hospital that really feels like a medical thriller. Um, and I introduced a character named Jane Rizzoli in that story. She was a secondary character. She was supposed to die. I had her death all planned out. Um, but as often happens when you write character-driven books, the characters start to assert themselves. And they start to say, no, I don't want to die. No, I've got another story to tell. And by the time I got to Jane Rizzoli's death scene, which anybody who's read The Surgeon knows where that scene is, yes. I, I, I couldn't do it. You know, she survived. So I finished the story and um, turned it in. And I was I was all set to do a book that was based on nerve gas, um, another medical thriller that had a you know nerve gas angle. But Jane Rizzoli was still there in my head. And the serial killer who was in The Surgeon was still there in my head. He he survives the book. He ends up in jail. Um, but these two people just weren't, weren't leaving. And so... I remember calling my agent and saying, I know you're expecting another medical thriller, but Warren and Jane want another book. They want they want another clash. And they were delighted because they said, sure, you know, we, we would love to have a sequel. So that's how the sequel, The Apprentice, came out. Um, and in that book, I introduced Maura Isles, again, another secondary character, never supposed to go on beyond book two. But by the end of that book, Maura Isles was very much a puzzle to me and I wanted to get dig into her psyche. So I wrote The Sinner and that's how the series started. It was just characters that don't want to leave. The The series progresses from there at, at a steady clip of like a book a year for about eight years or so. And then as you yeah. said in other interviews, you learn to smell the roses, you relaxed. It's every two years now, uh, roughly that pace. But it was in those first three books, it was not like the, the way I hear it discussed on Goodreads and stuff. Uh -huh. That's not what is going on in the first three books. If you read The Surgeon and The Apprentice back to back, the first two volumes, I feel like they should almost be bound together. They're so, so entwined. But it was such a compelling and crushing portrait of loneliness. It's very concerned with her role as a woman in law enforcement yeah. and constantly maneuvering in such a way that she can be independent and her autonomy can be respected, but without isolating herself and she, the, the, the push and pull between those things. And I li was literally thinking while reading The Apprentice this year that it was almost like Sorrows of Young Werther, not melodramatic, but just it was real. It felt black. Like, I think I've had periods of just feeling like I was surrounded by brick walls and it captures it captures that really well. I think it's reflective of the conversations I've had with women police officers. Um, not my experience so much, because as a medical doctor, um, I felt that women were more easily um, integrated into the general professionalism. And, and when I went to med, although I have to say, when I went to medical school, I was the first year uh, of after Title IX. 
when women were allowed to get into medical school in numbers beyond 10%, which was the limiting factor back then. It's hard to believe. Um, so so I, I felt like I was at the beginning wave of women doctors, women medical students. It's like all of a sudden women can do everything that they are, um, you know, they're capable of doing. But I think that in fields like surgery, in fields like police work, um, it's still very male dominated. And that was what I was, that was the word I was getting from women cops that I interviewed before I wrote The Surgeon, that they have to work twice as hard that, um, uh, you know, men are always harassing them um, and they just have to learn to toughen up. It's almost like you have to be a little mini man <laughs> when you're a woman cop. Um, and that that is a crust. It, it is it is a wall that separates you from maybe a lot of humanity. Um, so maybe that that was what you were probably getting was was the result of my interviews. Maybe so. And also, was it Title IX you just referred to? Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember what year that was, but I, so the year before I was in medical school, women were being admitted to medical schools, maybe 10 to 20% of women in in freshman classes. And after title nine, that number zoomed up to 40% in my medical school, because prior to then they were allowed to um, artificially restrict the number of women, even though the women were more qualified. Um, And so title nine just like blew that apart. And now all of a sudden women could go into sports. I mean, we think of it as sports, a sports issue, but it was actually important for admission to uh, professional schools as well. So many of these disparate points I had are, are sort of cohering. My, my dad is um, is 68 and he's a retired judge and a lawyer. And he says that, um, you know, he has friends who are 20 years older than him. And we were talking about why, why the legal profession is so incestuous, why judges marry lawyers who marry clerks, who marry judges, and et cetera. And part of it is the lingo. You'll you kind of need to be able to come home and talk about work. But he said he has friends who are 20 years older than him. They're in their mid 80s. And every couple months they wake up with the same nightmare that they've shown up to the LSAT and they're unprepared. And he says there there really is a trauma about the education that is yeah. seldom acknowledged. And uh, a friend of mine who's just finished med school said we're only about 10 years removed from a cap on the number of hours that residents can do in a week because there were mm-hmm. so many suicides that they capped it at 100, which is still inhuman. It's inhuman. <laughs> it seems I- like I mean, I recall working um, 80 hours a week felt human. It felt great to be able to work only 80 hours a week. But but I knew surgical residents um, who were on call every other night. They were essentially working 120 hours a week and, um, you know, on their feet for 36 hours straight. And I don't know how that was humanly possible, how many mistakes were made. I mean, I think that what ended up happening is it's not just the inhumanity towards the residents, it's the inhumanity towards the patients, the patients who were suffering because of this and all the mistakes that were made. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that me- the the practice of medicine has has become, um, you know, the old guys, they would say, oh, I got through it. You can go- get through it, too, um, without realizing that it was it was brutal and we should not be doing that to young doctors. Right. And you're saying you're taught you're referring to, I guess, the ramifications of just overworked, underslept doctors that that's how it was hurting patients there there were studies actually of uh sleep deprived doctors and how many mistakes they made reading ekgs and uh, you could see the mistakes go up the the more hours that they they had been on their feet you're mentioning sort of workaholics and stuff so i know you're married to a physician you are a physician Mm -hmm. and when you are giving it's sort of like when you're saving jane rizzoli in book three and you're finally giving her companionship romantic Mm -hmm. and um 
and platonic, it seems like the real gift, the most poignant of those relationships is her friendship with Maura Isles, who is very conflicted about her own relationship to work. And it seems like the, the biggest reward in that universe is collegiality, that that's yeah. where the joys are, that it isn't just, there's a lot said in the books about community and allowing yourself to be helped. Uh, by the people who care about you and embracing the fact that there are people who care about you. But it seems like the books believe to, uh, that the richest of those relationships are found through work and that they don't vilify work and, and obsessive dedication to work. Were you grappling with this a little bit? Because at the time you were newly a full-time writer, right? Yeah. Well, you, well, I've never had this this deep a question asked of me before. And it is fascinating <laughs> because I'm thinking about it. To me, you know, okay, I grew up with Star Trek. And yeah. the reason we love that show so much is not because it takes place in space. It is the collegiality. It is the teamwork of people who have come to trust each other and would actually give their lives for each other. Um, I have never experienced that. I think it is one of those things that I aspire to. It's an aspirational co collegiality that I've never known. Um, you know, when I was in residency, you're just too tired. You just really didn't have a chance to, to get into the sense of teamwork. And um, it, it probably speaks to my own personality is that I am very much a loner. I, I am like more aisles. I don't, I have my husband, I have my family. Um, but outside that, I am missing something. I am missing a work collegiality. And it has to do with, um, I think I have a little bit of Asperger's. It's not easy for me to make deep connections. Um, and it's also very hard for me. I, I never ask for help. And my husband is always like, why didn't you ask for help? And I I don't. I just don't because it feels uncomfortable to me. So um, I would say that the collegiality between Jane and Maura is, for me, as I said, aspirational. Okay. That, and I, I, I was wondering, you know, there's a way in which this stuff is foreign and um, please slap some of this stuff down. If it sounds very naive, I haven't articulated this yet to anybody, but I was trying to make note of gendered differences in approaches to these thriller series. And one of the things that I started to notice, and I'm not sure if it's been a large enough sample, it's been like 35 books, but I think women who write thrillers are, they write really good and consistently thorough set pieces. And whereas the male written thrillers tend to be more adrenal and go, 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 go. The yeah. I women in the thrillers written by women, I think it's because they spend their lives with a sharper sense of situational awareness, but you tend to find scenes in which you see the author's understanding of like the gradations of discomfort, how a friendly smile turns, evolves to a suggestive comment evolves to flirting, evolves to creepiness, evolves to threats. And so there are moments where I'm wondering, is this Tess Gerritsen talking about herself or is this just a feminine experience that is not really my own? I, You know, that's a good question. I, I think it's a feminine experience, maybe. Um, I, I mean, I look at the differences between my husband and me. I mean, my husband's a beta male, okay? So he's not like, <laughs> he's not like James Bond action man, but... I think that he enjoys James Bond. There's something about that, as you said, the propulsion of constant, constant, mm -hmm. really um, external action, external tension. I think we as women are much more attuned to internal tension, things that are not said, things that are not um, obvious to the eye, but things that are sensed through tone of voice, 
um, through micro expressions. Um, and, and I think I've, I've been become more aware that this is interesting to me because when I look at my television viewing habits, they tend to be British dramas. They tend to be, um, you know, because American well, TV is very propulsive. Uh, mm -hmm. British TV is much more I guess thoughtful. It, there, there are these micro expressions that come in with these really close-up camera lenses. I mean, I, I was just—I just finished watching Foil's War. I don't know if you've ever watched that series, mm -hmm. um, where the camera loves to focus right in. I mean, just like a quarter of his face, and you can see those micro expressions, and you can see what he's thinking without him ever having to say it. I think that that's what I would love to be able to write or to capture on the page. Uh, are the little the little nuances that um, maybe male readers don't care about, um, but I care about them and I love to read them. And um, that is that's probably what I'm aiming for is trying to capture that on the page. I, I think you do it a lot in instances that are deliberate. Uh, there's one I'm I don't know if you had this in mind, but it struck me, and it was one of the I was telling a friend Big Little Lies I read this year for the first time. It's the first book that's made me gasp. It's plot twist in years, but I slapped, I think it was The Sinner. I slapped it down and like had to pace the room. There is such a cringy moment where Jane is confiding to her former partner. He's had a heart attack and he's retired. She's confiding about oh. the business and this, this serial killer and horrible things. And then he suddenly just drops this horrifically awkward bomb about how he's got a crush on her. And I was just thinking, there's no way, there's no way. I was so caught up in the, the existential drama of a murderer slashing throats. And now she has to deal with this. And <laughs> it, was, it was one of the reading experiences of my life that has made me most jarringly aware of a gendered disparity just out and about doing a job. Well, you um, know, <laughs> that's what I discovered too. Okay. So um, I I wrote this book in collaboration with a friend of mine, Gary Braver. It's, it's I don't know if you read it. It's called Choose Me. And it was a no, male- I'm familiar with the- yeah. Yes, okay. So, so the setup of that was, um, I actually we 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 cooked this up over a cocktail party. Um, the Me Too movement was in full full bloom, and we all this stuff was coming out. And I thought I would I'd like to write a book of with a twist on the on the Me Too movement, where yes, there is an inappropriate relationship. Yes, he's her teacher and she's a student, a college student. And yes, what he did was wrong, but <laughs> the real villain is her. Um, and so we decided to write this story where I would write the female point of view, which is this pretty much obsessive college student. And he would write the part of the of the male college professor dealing with the aftermath of this mistake he made. And um, she ends up she ends up murdered. So it really turns into a murder mystery. Um, but as we were exchanging chapters and this was all done in COVID over email, he would write a chapter from the male point of view. And I would go, really, this is how men think about women. I mean, really? Because <laughs> everything was sexualized. Mm -hmm. And I, 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 I told him, you, we can't do this because our female readers will be so turned off. They will hate this book. So I had to tone it down. Um, but I went to my husband later and I said, this is how this professor thinks of this female student walking in the room. It is disgusting to me. But is it true? And he goes, yeah. My husband said, yeah, you see a woman and yeah, you're going to notice things about her body and you're going to, you know, they just, the, the, the brain just goes there. I mean, as women, we like to think that when you meet a woman, an attractive woman, you are entranced by her brains, by her personality, by her wit, by her sparkling eyes. But 
no, you're looking down at her tits. And that's, <laughs> and, and that was like, it was a revelation to me because it's the first time I've ever worked with a male author who was, who was being perfectly frank, you know, and I, right. I, I had to, I had to, to edit it. So yes, it's, um, it, there are tensions, male, female tensions that women are not, are only aware of when they become verbalized or when there's a touch or when there's a look. Uh, and then you, then it all becomes really different. We like to think of our male colleagues as, yeah, we enjoy working together, but there's always that. That's okay. That's going to catapult me forward to vanish book five there. That was obviously you're dealing with very heavy. You're talking about autopsies and yep. invasive thoracic surgery and stuff like that. It gets bloody, but weirdly for all of the gore, all of the autopsies, all of, you know, the tossing of brains into bedpans that happens in the first four books. It's really the fifth one where I felt it was just your depiction of human trafficking and sexual violence, which is not particularly explicit the way that you're doing it in that book. This was the first passage where it seemed like the author was trying to upset the reader, confront the reader with something. And I'm wondering if that was your intention, if it's ever your intention. Yeah, no, I was not specifically trying to upset you. <laughs> I was reflecting the reality, I think. I had just read an article, it was the New York Times Magazine about human trafficking. Yeah, and that was what inspired the whole story. Um, it was about these girls being brought over um, through through Mexico, uh, across the border and what happens to them. And I just thought, oh my God, this is really, this is really shocking. So I was, I actually think I pulled back on that story. I could have made it, I, I could have been much more um, graphic. But I, I did, I did not want to upset my reader. I just wanted to make the reader think they're all around us. These women are all around us, and are what are we doing about it? And how high up does it go? And does it go all the way to Washington? Um, and that article also um, talked about how um, our military. Um, it was um, I, they're called Z X now. Z what are they called? They were working in Iraq. Um, they changed their name anyway. These these were uh, military contractors that they were deeply involved. Blackwater. Yeah, it was Blackwater, and now it's called something else, okay. um, and how they were deeply involved with it. So I, it, I was trying to get not just the sexual trafficking, but maybe some politics into it, you know, how military contractors, I, I, I think they're horrible. I think it's a terrible um, uh, way to fight a war, um, that we pay these mercenaries to do this. But in the meantime, they're also making money. For them, it's all about money. Uh, so that that was where the, the inspiration came um, I was not trying to upset you. I was trying to reflect reality, but actually pulled back. Right. Yeah. I, and I don't, I don't mean from a position of sort of authorial malice. I think just basically what you're saying, trying to depict it as brutally as possible. But I was just, I was thinking about the fact that I don't think there has been an occasion in all these books about serial killers where you took us directly into the moment by moment, slicing and dicing. Um, well, you know, that's that's funny because autopsies are the least upsetting thing to me, I think. And the oh reason no, the, yeah, I, I'm I agree. I'm, I'm referring to sort of the torture sessions that we are, that are being investigated. You don't oh, show us right. those. Well, you know what? That's a fascinating thing that you say because I have been accused of being a really violent writer, and I, I actually don't show much violence on the page. What you see, uh, you see the aftermath. You see the body, and mm -hmm. Jane and Mora are imagining how they got, how this body got to that condition. And they are picturing the torture sessions. And that is what I think readers take away is they think they actually saw it happen when it's these two women doing their jobs, trying to reconstruct what happened. And it feels just as horrifying to reconstruct it as it does to watch it happen on the page. I don't like to see it on the page, 
Um, if I'm in a if I'm in a movie in a movie theater, I don't want to watch that either. Um, but two women doing their jobs, cutting open a body that's just that's just work. Yeah, and that's 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 definitely what comes across in the course of those autopsy scenes, which are often remarkable for the way that you can you never condescend to the reader. You don't you don't refer to oh she sliced that dangly bit at the back of his throat. You use <laughs> the actual medical terminology, but you you construct the explanations in such a way that a layman can totally understand and see what you're talking about. Um, but yeah, th those sessions are infused with conversations about marital problems and. Uh, I didn't get much sleep last night. They are, it's, it's, it's what the reality. coffee shop is and friends. It's is, reality. Is yeah. yeah. When I was thinking about your pulling back, you're maybe pulling back and you said, you, as you did with the depictions of human trafficking. A couple of years ago when I was reading Obama's memoir, the presidential one, it was so much in his voice. And I was struck at like page 67 when he said the word fuck. And I, I don't know why. And I realized, oh, I guess I've just never heard him say it. And then it came up again like 30 pages later and I circled it. And for the next 700 pages, I circled every appearance and there was like 40. Um, wow. <laughs> and then with, with these Lincoln lawyer books, I've been doing the same thing. And I'm noticing, I, I don't mean to imply any kind of compromise of integrity on the parts of these writers, but I've noticed that as the series progress, you start seeing people say, I lost my friggin' keys. Uh, okay. Whereas three books previous, they would have yeah. And the the action is less violent. And I think it's because they have started to think commercially. Not that they're less imaginative, not that the books are inferior, but it seems like punches are being pulled. And you have spent most of your life in Boston, right? I live in I live in Maine, but I'm close to Boston. Right. Yeah. Okay. But did you not live there while writing Rosalie Niles? No, I would oh, go down there for research. Oh, okay. Oh, that changes things. I, I, I live in this bubble of Miami and have my whole life where profanity is really just comfortable and it's everywhere. And yeah, and Boston been... shoot. <laughs> yes, that's why I was thinking of the analogy. But I, I, it really did not prepare me for the frequency with which I go on Goodreads. And I see people docking a star from a book that they really enjoyed because they said, ah, it's just too much potty yeah. mouth for yeah. me. And these are, these are long, eloquent reviews. Uh, do you get editorial pressure about that because you don't withhold dude there's nothing prudent about your use of language um uh, you know i will agree with you that i'm using the i'm using fuck a lot less as i go on yeah. and the reason for that is yeah we we, we go on a good reads and we see how many people will not read there are a lot of people who say i came to the first f word i shut the book i will never read her again i'm, I'm thinking where do these people live <laughs> you know i know yeah. I mean, do they never listen to real conversation? Um, I am, when I started off, I was trying to reflect what I would hear on the street corners in Boston and it's every other sentence. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it's just like, it doesn't mean anything anymore when you hear it a lot, but no, I, I feel that I am self editing. I've never been asked by an editor to change that. It's a, it's always been me. And every so often when I will put an F word in, I'll think, is there another way to say this? Is there another way that will not, you know, get everybody upset? And this is one reason I hate Goodreads. <laughs> Every single little, they are such delicate flowers. Um, yeah. You know, in, in the Spy Coast, the first, one of the first scenes with Maggie, is she, she has to kill a fox who's eating her chickens. Oh boy, I got a lot of, oh, animal cruelty, never reading one of her books again. I thought, well, what would you do if your chickens are all dying? Um, yeah. So yes, we do. We do self-edit, 
because of what people say about us on Goodreads. I, uh, similar to that, finding that so baffling, I was surprised to hear Dean Koontz say that nothing generates angry fan mail like getting some a detail wrong about a gun and that he has yes, eased off yes. describing guns in such detail I, um, because the enthusiasts will, will jump on you. So, okay, this is going to be a detour. Strike me down if it's totally wrong, but I'm going to make my case. There is a subgenre in fiction that I'm a big fan of, a midlife crisis novel. I think Body Double, the fourth book in the Rizzolian Isles series, manifests some of the attributes of that. There is also this sort of theme of doubles and doppelgangers in fiction that preoccupies, seems to preoccupies authors in moments of crisis in their life. I had a sense that The Sinner was a trill, it marked the conclusion of a trilogy, and now the author was going forward and maybe questioning whether this was a good idea. So there's this thing, I don't know if it's intentional, repeatedly throughout the book, characters, a character will say to someone else, I just said that. And I was thinking, is this the author lamenting that she's back with these characters? <laughs> um, we're in the center. There is a babe. They find a dead baby with a deformed head. There's a hole in the head. And then there's a deformed baby again, a deformed dead baby in body double. And I was thinking, is this a metaphor of the author saying, what have I created? What, what Frankenstein thing have I made? And then that's the one where there's this really, I think it's a pivotal moment of the series where this sort of vindictive evil psychologist is having a really thorough, intimate back and forth with Maura Isles about, you know, yeah, we're interested in the same thing and, and you're vilifying me because I maybe fetishize serial killers, but you're the one who isolates yourself in a cold room and you cut open dead people who are not going to talk to you. You only speak to like-minded people who are all hermetic in the same way and really prompts her to explore, you know, this thing that you think you're doing, you think it's so noble. Don't you realize it's kind of perverted? And the task for Mora is to sort of just embrace, knows who I am, whatever. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking like, this sounds like the author arguing with herself about why am I pursuing this, this series? And then there's a line by Mora. We all play roles. I have my official mask at work the one I wear when I'm Dr. Isles. And it sounds like the sexual violence we've been exploring on the victims in these books, she feels something like it just being out in the world. I don't know, am I right in thinking that there was a lot of internal authorial conflict going on with book four? Okay, well, first of all, I I think um, you've dived too deep. <laughs> I don't think any Okay, of that. sorry. Okay, I think okay. you're looking for things that aren't there. But let me tell you where ideas, where these books come from. Okay. It's not necessarily internal. A lot of it, these ideas are external. Uh, and Body Double, I recall very distinctly where that came from. It was a, re it was a true crime a case that I had read about that happened in um, Oregon, or I think it was Oregon, of uh, a young man who called the police and said, my father just assaulted sexually assaulted my girlfriend. And by the way, I think he's been killing the girls in the neighborhood and you should dig up his yard. And so they did, they dug up the yard. They found the bodies of two young girls who had vanished. Um, and that's, that's awful enough that the son had to turn in his dad. But what's really awful is that it turns out that his grandfather did the same thing. His grandfather killed girls and buried them in his backyard. So I was looking at this family of serial killers and that's where Body Double came from. It's like, what wow. if you were descended? And I think Maura Isle says this, we are all descended from monsters in one way or another. So it's that sense of, of a bloodline that is, that is, is tainted. And what does that say about yourself? So that was really an external um, motivation to write that book. And the other thing I wanted to um, um, 
there was a, something else you were talking about. Oh, okay. About that she has a mask, that she um, she goes into the into her work and she does these things and she's kind of a loner. Um, I, not to cast aspersions on people who do forensic pathology, but I know a lot of them are like that. Um, <laughs> you know, I, 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 I respect. I know a number they of- hide behind the badge? Uh, or they live in their mother's basements. And really, a, a oh, lot really. Of them are are just- I think a lot of them do have Asperger's or a lot of them do actually um, are beyond that. Um, they're, they're uncomfortable with people. They're uncomfortable with social interaction and they are comfortable uh, cutting open people because nobody talks back to them. So um, the forensic pathology is probably just um, attracts a different kind of doctor, somebody who doesn't feel comfortable with human interaction. And I think that's uh, more what Mora is coming from. But I mean, the truth is that's me too. Um, probably I would have been very happy doing forensic pathology. Um, and that's why Mora is comfortable because she's a loner, you know, and and um, people don't talk back to her down in the morgue. It takes me off balance to hear you say that. I guess just because Due to TV and stuff, the white lab coat confers this air of grace and uh, refinement, and uh, it does make it, it does make a perfect kind of sense what you're saying. But uh, for some reason, I assumed it was going to be very articulate people who have a front seat at the opera. Yeah, some of them do, but I, I have run probably into yeah a couple of very I guess I would just call them odd birds. In all this, the whole series, in your exploration of issues of choice and work and whether to, you know, surrender a marriage in pursuit in the interest of my job or, or having children in the interest of my job. Now we come to the spy coast in which the protagonists are older, but they're still bonded by work, yeah. but it's work they don't have anymore. And there's an air of grief about it, but they're no longer, your protagonist is no longer talking, is no longer consumed as Brazilian and Isles are with what are the sacrifices I'm going to make. She is now living in the twilight of the sacrifices she made. And it's behind her. And um, it's the most ruminative of your books. Most of the major drama is in the past from the main action. There's a lot of flashbacks and the paragraphs are longer. Um, the prose is a little more flowy. It's, it's a little more like, you know, a ribbon and wind. I'm wondering if as an author of series, do you find that, I'm sorry for these constant examples. Joyce Carol Oates insists that a novel should be written quickly. So it captures the moment of your life in which you are very passionately feeling a certain thing that you shouldn't spend six years on a novel. And I'm wondering if as you go through different stages in life, do you find maybe a new series is necessary to work as a literary vehicle to explore what you're going through day to day? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Um, so I've written 13 Rizzolian Isles novels, and I know that my publisher would like another one, but... I think my age, uh, my milieu. I'm 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 living in a town with a lot of retired spies. I mean that was that was the inspiration, but the real thing had to be to be in the right stage of life for me. To I mean I think that at my age you're doing a lot more looking back than you are looking forward. Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot of reflection on mistakes you made, on regrets you have, wish wishing that you had done something different. And um, that's why the character Maggie Bird, when she spoke to me, and, and you know, a lot of my books start off beyond just that I have an idea from something I read in True Crime. It starts off with the voice of a character in my head. And I just heard Maggie say, I'm not the woman I used to be. And that got me thinking, well, 
who did you used to be and what went wrong? Because you could hear, when I hear a voice, there's a lot you hear in a voice. It's not just male or female or education level or age. It's sadness. And that's what I heard with her, sadness. Um, so I knew this was going to be, in a way, a tragic story. Um, I knew that she was going to somehow have to think back to what happened and what went wrong. Um, so that's, that's, it just, I needed to be at this stage of life to write this. I could not have written this 40 years ago or 20 years ago. But the, the themes are all there. There's a, a character whose name is Do, Duco, who oh, yes. dies. Yeah. And it's not a big spoiler because if you know the genre, when he steps on stage, you know this guy's not going to be wrong. <laughs> poor Duco. But, uh, poor Duco. But when he dies, um, she is driving by. She can't see his face as he's lying on the road because there's a crowd gathered around. All she sees is his Rolex, the Rolex that he wore to try to convince people that he was something he wasn't. Yeah. And one of the, it seemed like one of the uh, big distinguishing... Rizzoli and Isles are constantly, to some degree, concerned with, am I full of shit? Am I being the person I ought to be? Whereas Maggie seems to be saying, yeah, I was always full of shit, wasn't I? The identity crisis is behind her. But, oh, another thing I was noticing with these masks and people sort of guarding themselves throughout the books, you use the same word when describing that part of the autopsy where the face peels down. Mm -hmm. Every time that's come up in the series to the extent... to to the book that I read, um, it's described as the face collapsing. And sometimes you say collapsing on itself. Yeah, and it it's just such, it's a consistent exploration of people's faces being pulled away by their circumstances. But you're someone who, because you meet, you have a huge readership and you meet them, you go out and you do these engaged book tours. Do you, do you meet, in talking with them, do you meet a person named Tess Gerritsen who they think they know and it's totally unlike you? Are you, are you, does that make sense? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Absolutely does. Um, yeah, I have a I have a public persona and I have a private persona, and that's I think that's true for a lot of authors because a lot of us are introverts. Um, we have to put on our our battle our our battle face, and we have to go out and we have to learn to smile and we have to learn to engage. When really it is exhausting. It's um, you know, going out on book tour at the end of the day, I just want to shut my hotel door and turn on the television and not talk to anybody. Uh, and that's, that is my comfort zone. Um, so it is, it, you are forced to go out of your comfort zone when you meet readers. I mean, I love readers. I, I, I'm so happy that they have allowed me to, to do what I love to do um, because they buy my books. Um, but I'm all, I'm also very, very aware that we all have masks. And this is something that I think I came to appreciate when I was writing Jane Rizzoli for the first time. We all feel like the wallflower. Um, I, I have I have had people at book signings, beautiful young blonde women. I mean, just the most gorgeous women in the in the room. And she'll go, yeah, I feel like Jane Rizzoli too. I feel like I'm I'm not the, you know, I'm the wallflower. And I look just look at them and go, you? So in a sense, that's that's a universal feeling as we always never feel attractive enough. We never feel charming enough. And if we do, then we're sociopaths. So okay. <laughs> that's, that's I think that's what people channeled when they read Jane, because Jane is she is she's so um, she's so insecure about her looks, about her femininity, about about being a woman. And that's that's part of the reason she dislikes Catherine Cordell in that first book, The Surgeon, because Catherine is beautiful and Jane feels right. like the wallflower. Um, so yeah, that's, that's um, I think a universal feeling among um, girls 
we are always meant to, we're always made to feel like we're not good enough or not beautiful enough or not thin enough. Um, and that's why we love Jane Rizzoli in the books. Um, going forward, you have, it, it is a two book contract that I saw. And in, in previous interviews from years back, I've heard you be coy about the titles of forthcoming books, but I did see a title posted on Amazon for the next yes. volume. Is that yes, what it's I, supposed to be? Yes, they were, um, they insisted on having a title because uh, Amazon is all about future marketing. Um, and, you know, I, Sometimes my titles don't come to me until I finish the, the book. That was not going to happen this time. So they wanted a, a general idea of what the story was about. And they came up with, I think, a very interesting title called The Summer Guests. Um, it has very much to do with the story and with the town of Purity, Maine, which is primarily a tourist town. Okay. And uh, do you see this going forward? Do you have the stories in you? Do you feel the publisher is behind <laughs> this you? Is, this is, a, oh, yeah, no, the publisher is great. Um what you're doing now is talking to me and when I'm in a state of exhaustion. <laughs> so gotcha, gotcha. right Never now mind. I'm thinking I am just barely scraping through this, this next, the second draft of the, of this next book. And I, I can't, I mean, I have ideas. I have tons of ideas. It's just that when am I going to feel like I recharged enough to actually jump into the next, into, into a third book with Maggie. Okay. I would like to, I think, I think it has the potential of being a long running series because we have these five martini club members and we don't know their pasts. I think that their past would be interesting. Um, and I have an inkling of what would be happening for their, you know, for the next books, but I'm too tired to talk about it. <laughs> 